Have you ever experienced or felt a loss? Some event characterized by grief or sadness that transformed how you view yourself, your relationships, and your world. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Paige Perky. And in today's episode of What's Next, we will explore this very idea and how to go about picking up and lovingly putting the pieces of our heart, our soul, our psyche, our understanding of our reality, putting all of that back together. And to help me in this effort, I have the privilege of introducing and interviewing Dr. Robert Niemeyer. Dr. Niemeyer was one of my most favorite professors during grad school, yet now his title is Professor Emeritus, which is basically a fancy word meaning that he is retired from the Department of Psychology. But even so, he maintains an active consulting and coaching practice. He directs the Portland Institute for Loss and Transition, which provides training internationally in grief therapy. He's also published over 30 books. He's the editor of a well-respected international journal. He holds a ton of differing awards and positions. He really is an authentic role model in both his professional and personal lives. And with that, it is with heartfelt appreciation, admiration, and pleasure that I now introduce to you Dr. Niemeyer and our interview on the meaning-making process of grief. Please enjoy. Thank you again for joining What's Next. We're so excited to have you on today's show. So speaking of, your work is, is on the meaning-making process of grief. Can you explain some of your work in that process? Absolutely, because, you know, Paige, when we think of grief, we automatically associate to all of those losses that we ourselves have had, and especially losses of people we love, that maybe our grandparents, our parents, and maybe older relatives. Uh, if our lives are more tragic, it might be younger people. It could be our child. Mm. It could be our, a partner or a, a sibling or a soulmate. Um, and some of those losses will come in ways that are predictable and life-affirming. Maybe someone dies a relatively gentle death with uh, generous support and family love encircling them uh, after living a, a long life and living it well. But of course, too often, uh, death occurs at terribly inconvenient times for us way too early in the life cycle or under circumstances that can be horrific or traumatic, uh, as with a, you know, a child who overdoses or a parent who dies by suicide or um, a grandparent who enters hospital for an abscessed tooth and uh, contracts COVID-19 uh, and, and dies within a week on a, on a ventilator under conditions where we can't even visit her. So in all of these ways, um, we immediately associate to the, the pain of grief, the separation distress, sometimes the complicating emotions of maybe guilt or powerlessness. Um, we may at times get caught up in all that was not really dealt with well in our relationship, the so-called unfinished business of 
of living or the circumstances under which people died in which we we couldn't make amends or in some way honor their legacy or um, even in this COVID era, uh, be present to them, holding their hand, kissing their cheek, um, remembering together uh, important life events. So the emotional drama of loss and dying is very vivid for us. And when we think of meaning, it sounds kind of abstract, like, you know, like something a philosopher would come up with. <laughs> but when we really center down um, and we ask ourselves some basic questions, then the importance of meaning in mourning becomes really clear, right? Mm -hmm. When we ask ourselves, how do I wrap my head and my heart around this loss? It might be the loss of my pet dog that I have to put down. What's that mean to me? It might be my child's struggle with cancer or the losses involved in that. And how do I make sense of this passage, the circumstances under which they die, or the circumstances under which we then live in light of that dying? So I think of that as the need to process the event story of the dying and the death itself, its implications for our lives. And then on another track, we're also trying, in a way, to reaccess the backstory of our relationship to our loved one, even beyond their death. We're trying to ask ourselves, how now do we love them in absence when they're no longer with us in presence? Mm -hmm. How do I in some way form or reform a continuing bond with them in which they continue to mean something to me in my life? What does it mean to me that I almost have like an internal dialogue with my, uh, my father when I'm trying to make certain kinds of decisions, even though he died decades ago. Or we may lose a partner and we find ourselves spontaneously almost telling them about the events of our day or hearing their voice bearing on us. So I think in, in these ways, we're asking ourselves, you know, what does the death mean? What does our life mean in light of it? And what does the relationship mean now going forward? Mm -hmm. So when we ask about meaning, we're also asking about what matters and why. We're asking about who we are and whose we are. Mm -hmm. right? Who do I belong to? Right? In what way do I maintain this, this bond or connection with the dead, even though I also embrace the living? So, so for me, that's the, the meaning of meaning in grieving is um, I, I do see grieving as a process of attempting to reaffirm or reconstruct a world of meaning that has been challenged by loss. Sometimes it's just shaken by it. Sometimes it's shattered by it, depending on how tragic or traumatic it is. So. I do think that that's a, a key feature of trying to say, how do I put Humpty Dumpty together again? How do I put together a world that works mm -hmm. when the loss that I've sustained has really shattered the world that used to be there? And of course, a lot of us can identify with that in this COVID era, can't we? Right, absolutely. Speaking of 
how would you recommend in light, we'll, we'll go with the COVID context since, since that's what you have defined it as for now. What do you recommend for people trying to, like you said, people feel, I'm paraphrasing, fragmented, you know, they've lost their sense of self through loss. How do people in face of COVID, or really we can expand it out to any facet of life where loss is involved, how do people go through that process of processing it and also, like you said, reaccessing? How would you, in a simplistic way, present that for someone? Well, I, I think you're asking all the right questions here because the, the right questions are always the practical questions. What do we do with it? What's the news we can use here? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I would say that the first thing is um, if we were just to take the COVID context, because it's the one we're all living in now, it's a common denominator. Every, everyone listening to this podcast uh, is, is having her, his, or their own experience of multiple losses. So to begin with that, it's important to recognize loss, to validate the reality of our losses. Uh, I think oftentimes when the loss is pervasive, abstract, um, invisible, you know, in the way that the COVID surrounds us like an atmosphere, it is the atmosphere, it's in the atmosphere, we're wearing masks to protect it or distancing ourselves or sheltering at home or, you know, entering stores only with special protections and uh, procedures. In, in all of these ways, we're living in a world that has taken from us the once familiar world in which we felt more at home. And with that, there are a lot of non-death losses that occur. Although of course, the now about 130,000 Americans have died of, uh, of, of COVID-19. Okay, we're 5% of the world's population, by the way, we Americans, but we account for nearly 30% of all infections and 30% of all deaths on the planet. That's how bad a job we are doing relative to virtually all other countries. That's astonishing. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to minimize the literal deaths that are occurring here, but many things are dying other than people. Our sense of security may be one thing we lose. We don't feel at home in our skin or in our home even, maybe. Um, Certainly not in our community and in the places we used to gather with others. We lose a sense of predictability. We used to know how things would go. Now every week things are different and all of the old routines and patterns are called into question or they're undermined or just canceled out altogether. Um, We lose a sense of control. Uh, now, you know, we have to sort of uh, pay attention to what authorities tell us to do. we harder to make decisions about our own lives. Uh, and we lose a sense of agency and choice. Right? Those summer vacations that we had planned, those are probably being rewritten. Maybe even our participation in our, our work is being profoundly rewritten or aborted altogether as one in four uh, Americans has filed for unemployment. Um, and most of the rest of us have experienced substantial financial losses. Mm-hmm. So 
the losses are many, including the just our usual ways of being with other people. And I think the first practical advice I would give people is to find a place of silence in which we can center down and pay close attention to ourselves. We might do it in a moment of meditation. Right? We close our eyes and just find some deep and full breathing with our diaphragms, right? Not just our upper lungs. And just cultivate silence through a few breaths and then ask ourselves a question. What have I lost? And just listen for what rises up and says, me, you've lost me, right? Predictability, that's one thing you don't have now, Bob. Allow ourselves in a way, metaphorically or literally, to kind of nod our heads and say thank you to that loss that presented itself for recognition. Take another breath and say, what have I lost once more? And listen for what comes. Right? The contact with my partner. You know, I can't see her now. She's living somewhere else. Thank you. What have you lost? the hoped-for future of what this summer would be or maybe what this life would be. Right? And we can just continue to ask ourselves that perhaps a dozen times. And in the silence that arises, just listen for what comes up. Mm -hmm. Name it and claim it. Validate our own feeling about it instead of just feeling a kind of wordless malaise or anxiety and uh, attempt to distract ourselves or, you know, kind of just have it take its toll on our night of sleeping or our irritability with others, to acknowledge the deep anxiety of living in a world that is not familiar to us, grappling with, you know, a sort of life that is in some way unknown. So I think in a way grieving begins with the recognition of loss and the acceptance of it, the some way kind of symbolizing it. We might do it in an art form, right? Maybe we do a collage that expresses our emotion much more clearly than a, a few random words can. But in whatever form we choose to find a way of holding the mirror to our own hearts, minds, and souls and say, what's going on in here? When I'm feeling this unease, this sadness, this fear, this grief. Um, so as we also talk about meaning making then, I think a big part of that is how do we make sense of what we're feeling? How do we make sense of our own emotions charitably, compassionately? Um, once we do that, then we can begin to recognize the needs implied in them. Maybe what I contact when I slow down and pay attention is a deep loneliness. And if we sit with that for a moment, then we might ask, what would help to fill up this kind of void that I feel almost at, at the level of my torso or belly, a kind of emptiness? Well, it wouldn't be just maybe watching another TV show on Netflix with somebody um, it might be something, uh, you know, a more earnest conversation or 
Maybe it's just reaching out for human touch or something. And so we can be a lot more informed and self-caring if we are attentive to the, uh, our implicit needs, if we see our emotions as having meaning for us, telling us what we need more of or less of. Mm-hmm. How would you support or encourage someone to really take the time and take, take a moment to really truly value and honor their emotions and encourage them to try out these unique approaches that maybe they have never engaged with. Like, you know, you were talking about sitting and being quiet and then asking questions, allowing the answer to bubble up to the surface rather than immediately answering it with our own ego mind. How would you support and encourage people to choose that route versus the habitual, more comfortable pattern of, oh, let me watch this TV show or have a glass of wine or or whatever it is? How would you support and encourage them in choosing one path versus the other? Well, I, I think if it begins with honesty with ourselves and if we are enjoying that nice uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and we feel very present to it and we're appreciating the nuances and we're picking up subtle uh, hints of ripe fruit and so on and uh, we're you know having a, uh, an experience of real present engagement with that wine, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, do it fully. But if it's simply the third glass that you're knocking back, in order to be able to, to sleep after an uneasy day, then just ask yourself, how well is this working for me? Is this doing the trick? Or is binge-watching this TV show, is it filling up the void? Is it establishing the connection I need with others of my kind? Mm. Do I feel at peace? And if the answers are no, not so much, then it's time to try something different. And, you know, these aren't really new ideas. Wisdom traditions based upon quiet self-observation and meditation and a deep kind of fearless quest to understand ourselves have been around for over 3,000 years, right? This is the story of Buddhism. And Mm -hmm. in some ways, wisdom traditions of all kinds Mm -hmm. have invited us into places of of silence and reflection, whether it's contemplative prayer, whether it is a, a form of exercise, yoga, and so on, that would put us in touch with our own bodies and hearts more fully. I love so, that you said that. That reminds me of, there was a, his name is Swami Kripalu, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but basically the meaning-making process, how we come to understand life, or some people may call it like a spiritual practice, the, the highest form of that is self-observation with compassion. And that totally resonates with what you're saying here. Yeah. And, and you know, it, this is, again, something that one can find in the resources of one's own tradition. Mm-hmm. It may be richly evident in Buddhist and Hindu practice, but in some way there is a path in in every spiritual tradition that I've encountered that, that fosters this, asking the deep questions about what has meaning and value in life. And when we talk about finding 
value and meaning in loss, even, then we were inviting ourselves to learn the lessons of loss, to recognize that, you know, to use an academic metaphor, loss and grief are not elective courses that we can choose not to take. Right. We are going to be confronted by losses at many levels from early on in life to increasingly as we age until at the end of the day, though we don't really like to think about this much, every person, every place, every project, every possession, right, every profession um, that we love and that defines who we are, we will lose. We will lose every one of them. And by the time we reach the age of 30 or 60, we've already lost much and we will lose everything else, at least in a literal way, an earthly way. Now, depending on one spiritual frame, we might see the possibility of, you know, of connections beyond this life. But in this life, loss is pervasive and we can relate to that lesson in various ways that probably the least uh, satisfying is simply to distract ourselves from it or to try to get over it. And probably a more advanced path would be one that takes the inevitability of loss as the, in some way, the, the shadow that brings forth the three-dimensional reality of what we now have, who we now have, that makes more precious this moment or this person or this conversation. So far from in some way eroding the, the quality of, of living, it can accentuate it and emphasize it and invite us into more appreciative contact with it. Mm -hmm. That's actually, I, I was thinking about that. It sounds that part of this maybe well, I don't know if it'll necessarily lessen the pain of grief, right? But remaining as present as possible and remaining grateful for the present moment, whatever's in that present moment, whether it be taking in this breath or spending time with a loved one, a friend, or a simple smile down the street, you know, because like you said, every, each moment is fleeting and just being... I guess maybe even too practicing some self-acceptance might be helpful in this process. Yeah. Yeah. Self, self-criticism, self-contempt, all of the ways in which people really derogate themselves, limit themselves, scold themselves, sometimes even punish themselves. I think it, it costs us much. It's very hard to experience genuine compassion for or deep relationship to another if we cannot also have that in relation to ourselves mm -hmm. because we we're not at ease with the self that's coming into relation so how can we be comfortable with the relationship it's as if our own whatever the form of malaise or, or disregard is for ourselves it contaminates and limits the relationship Mm -hmm. And often relationships then become something that we try to engage in to compensate for a sense of deficiency in the self rather than viewing ourselves as abundant and a source of, you know, of light or beauty that we offer to another and receive from another in, you know, in equal proportion. So 
And I, I think that this is true whether we're talking about the intimate relationships that have special meaning and value for us, or the very non-intimate encounters with strangers in random acts of kindness and moments of uh, fleeting human contact. You know, I think about, I, I take uh, a lot of runs and walks through the day. I do about eight miles of, of uh, running or walking a day. And so I'm often going through uh, the woods around my home here in, in Portland, Oregon, on different trails. And nowadays, of course, with social distancing, when I encounter others, uh, maybe, maybe a family, it might be a father and a child or something, or a mother and a child walking on a trail, then, you know, we'll give wide berth to them, right? Make sure we step off to the side. And I've had some precious interactions with young children, just a couple, three years old, who are going to look up at me. And your viewers don't know, but I have reddish hair and uh, a beard. And I, I, I think at one point I was wearing, it's a little misty with rain. And so I was wearing a hood and I probably looked a lot like an elf mm-hmm. <laughs> to this child who looked up at me and said hi and, uh, and uh, asked me who I was or something. And I said, uh, I said my name and I said, I'm an, I'm an elf. I live in the woods. The mother was standing off to the side and kind of chuckling. Um, we had this sweet little interaction know, uh, Mm -hmm. just a playful one. So I think that we can, we can embrace these random moments as well as the planful ones where we intentionally, you know, open our, our hearts or our stories to others. We listen to their stories with an open heart. But I do think it begins with, it begins with self-regard and an equal regard for others, Mm -hmm. treating neither us nor the other as a kind of thing, but rather as a you know, a source of, of meaning, really. Yeah, I think that's actually really, really powerful, what you just said. It feels very relevant to the current sociopolitical tensions of the, the need to, without getting political, the, just the need in general to hold space for people on both sides of the political aisle, no matter your race, your religion, whatever it is, just holding that space and that time for, for to allow people to grieve, to process, to allow their stories to be heard, because that's where healing can really take place. And again, as you know, I actively do my self-work, like self-therapy, and that's part of this. We're in series one of that process. And you're so right. You know, I never really realized how how much this, you know, grieving and working through our whatever it is of the past, our traumas, experiences, really, it, they do, they shape your present understanding of reality. And if we can give ourselves the opportunity, give ourselves and others the opportunity to express and be heard and heal I really feel like that, once that has had its its time, its opportunity, then we can more effectively move forward and work together in a harmonious, cooperative way to problem solve what we're seeing in our in our societal system right now. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, yeah. There are so many silent stories with which we live in our own individual lives and in our collective lives together mm-hmm. um, that don't get the airtime that they deserve. Mm-hmm. I think we do not serve ourselves or others well when we believe that there is a single story 
that is the authoritative story and everyone needs to subscribe to it mm-hmm. instead of looking for what is true about each of the stories that we have to tell. Right. Taking into account the very different perspective of lives unlike our own and how the reality that they may be living is something scarcely imaginable or mm-hmm. painful to imagine for us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the it kind of goes back to what you were talking about the more that we understand ourselves, the more we have compassion for others and we can really hear their story and we understand it. They, maybe they did X, Y, Z behavior and maybe we don't necessarily agree with that behavior. But when you understand, when you peel back the layers of the onion, you really see at the core of that person's being, their essence, what shaped them into the person that they are where that behavior manifested it you just you really you understand and you're like I get it I I totally I I understand and that's where I feel like if we can get every if we if we individually can get us to that place I mean it's a hard place to get to because right we are mostly interested in validating our own reality um, at the expense of others why do you think that is It's easier. It's dualistic. It allows us to establish a a contrast between self and other, usually a contrast based on contempt, so that it's, and contempt is the strongest of positive emotions, um, in the sense that it reaffirms the the sense of our own worth or special value or goodness Mm -hmm. over against the hated or derogated other. Mm. And so it's very easy to develop a, a rhetoric of, uh, of othering mm-hmm. where another person often identified with a certain group or nation becomes the, the foil that we use to contrast with our own preferred identification. Mm-hmm. So it's the, you know, my rightness is revealed by your wrongness kind of thing. And, and this is true on, on both sides of virtually every issue. It's not a, uh, it's not a unique failing of any one uh, race or place uh, or gender, um, you know, or age group or ideology. Uh, it's the, the nature of, of how we construct a, a, a sense of our self-worth that requires the debasement of others. It's a tougher thing, but ultimately far more enlightened thing to ask the question, how am I similar to him or her or them? Mm -hmm. What losses in my own life have been poorly accommodated? When have I felt marginalized, oppressed, powerless, helpless, hopeless? Can I go there to those places? And what helped me or would have helped me at those times? When we begin to engage in self-reflection that has its basis in compassionate reflection on others, then we are far better able to build a bridge of empathy with them Mm -hmm. and to recognize that at the end of the day, we're all simply much more human than otherwise. We've suffered similar losses. We have similar hopes and similar aspirations. And, you know, in community and connection, we can do a lot more than we can through uh, oppression and uh, segregation. 
So could this idea of meaning making, of understanding our world or grief specifically, could that be applied to the idea of losing the grief or the loss of losing yourself? Yeah, yeah. I really like that you bring that forward because in some ways, I think that even the death of another person often is tangled up with a death of a part of ourselves, the part of us who maybe was uniquely seen and held and loved in that relation is at risk of dying too, of becoming invisible, inaccessible, no longer really, really validated and uh, called forth. So I think that self-loss and other loss are, are strongly linked. And probably some similar processes of, of a self-healing kind are required in both circumstances. Sometimes we lose a part of ourself that's not linked specifically to another, but maybe it characterizes like an earlier period in our lives or maybe a, a younger or naive sort of stance that we once had that now is no longer supportable for us. And so we ask ourselves, uh, what do we do with this earlier Bob or Paige or what happened to that uh, the person I used to be? Um, we might grieve that, um, or we might, you know, push it away as something that uh, we don't want to embrace or hold. Uh, you know, it's not a matter of our losing it, but it's our wanting to lose it, like to leave that part behind. Sometimes that's not so easy to do, as we find. Mm -hmm. We all carry our wounded inner, inner children in a way with us <laughs> through life. Right. So. So I think these are really interesting questions that you raise, and I'd, I'd be happy to engage them. I wonder if you have a just an idea or an experience in your own life that, that conjures up that question for you. Yes, I, I do. It's actually very much, very timely. I've actually talked about it in my podcast. I feel as though, you know, I transitioned out of grad school, and I'm in my position at a local university, and I have noticed a shift, and I, I feel as though I have lost my my old the old version of myself, and I'm working through grieving that, and lovingly, and hopefully gracefully, letting go. I guess that past version of myself. What are your thoughts? So if I had known that previous version, and maybe I did because you were <laughs> once in a class of mine uh, about a decade ago, what would that page have been like that is different than the page I'm talking to today if I were to meet that uh, younger woman? What would I see and hear in her that would be different than the one I encounter now? It's very interesting. I would say, see, I don't want to be self-critical. It's something I'm working on. But I will say misguided or definitely emotionally naive. Like, for instance... I thought I wanted to go to grad school as a bucket list. <laughs> I really wasn't 
sure what I wanted to do with my life. I felt I wasn't very regulated. It was just, you know, mm-hmm. kind of you'd be caught up by the enthusiasm of a moment or a particular relationship or encounter or possibility and yes yes very very much so just and not I guess really disembodied lacking and I say this with love to myself but just lacking true self-awareness and object objectivity of oneself again not as grounded unsure of it's interesting. I was very confident and I thought I knew everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yet I, in retrospect, you know, reflecting, I, I realized that I thought I knew everything, but I, I really, I didn't even know myself, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, we begin by speaking about a lost self. But I guess what I am hearing emerge is more of like a found self like not so much what you have lost as what you've gained in terms of self-awareness maybe a little more humility instead of a false confidence or yes and then there's an aspect of me too where my older tendencies uh procrastination due to well now i know it's due to a fear (laughs) Sometimes I have fear of success and fear of failure, but like the procrastination will creep up or maybe instead of, you know, engaging in the, with these tools, sometimes I'll, you know, disengage and distract myself and, and, and I'm, I feel like I'm ready to let that part of me go. But then a part of me is like, but am I really? Because here I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. So, it, it, again, it, I, I love that when we stay with a question, what often comes is not an answer, but better questions. <laughs> right. You know, I, have you ever had that experience? Yes. Because it's, as you speak about this, what I'm, I'm almost feeling is like the, the ghost or shadow of that earlier self will find its way kind of into your present and, uh, oh, there's that procrastination again, mm-hmm. or some of these older qualities or tendencies may come back in an unsettling way. And uh, the question is, what do I do with that? You know, as you say, I'd almost like to lose it, right? That this is a, an uncomfortable blast from the past, <laughs> and I'd, I'd rather just move into this uh, maybe a, a place of uh, being a yogini and totally self-aware and but uh, that seems elusive at times. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that one response that I would have is to recognize how we never fully lose anyone we have loved or been. Mm. We simply hold on to them in different ways, and the different ways can include more compassionate ways. So the possibility of of cultivating a a compassionate or caring way of even looking at the the limitations of our younger selves and finding a way to hold them gently 
oh yeah, there's that insecurity. Uh, there's that, that's, what's going on with that procrastination? Oh, that fear is not entirely gone yet. So in that kind of accepting, non-reactive way to make space for the part of us that is still you know, uncertain or sometimes maybe overconfident or a little naive or still hurting or a little afraid. Um, I think when we construct the house of our being to be large enough and spacious enough that we can invite all of them as guests, um, then we have a more harmonious relation to ourselves. And um, I like that. That's very, that's beautiful. It's like, we talk about that in, in wisdom traditions. We, have, of course, have a more scientific quote, understanding. Mm-hmm. We call it integration. Yeah. And yeah, it's exactly. what you're describing, yeah. Because we, we do grow through integration rather than through subtraction. Mm-hmm. We don't want to become less of what we have been. We want to become more. It's uh, you know an additive, integrative dynamic that enlarges us not a cutting away and rejecting and denying uh, stance. And, you know, if all of that does feel a little abstract or philosophic, then, you know, let's just make it concrete. You can say to the, you know, the 32-year-old Paige, how can I be a good big sister to the 22-year-old Paige who's showing up here in her procrastination, right? Mm -hmm. If I were a loving older sister, how would I respond to her? it's not such an abstract thing, right? Right. Would I scold her? Would I shame her? Or would I sit down and help her figure out what's really going on for her that she fearfully withdraws or, you know, moves into some other pattern of defense or self-protection? Mm-hmm. Um, when people feel like they have a secure relationship with another, it often, you know, it helps them be much more grounded and they're, they're willing to take risks. And I think it's true if we have a more secure relationship with ourselves too, mm-hmm. then we're more able to move toward things that are necessary, but a source of some fear or anxiety for us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like developing secure relationships or a secure relationship with oneself is a lifelong learning process, or at least that's my experience thus far. For instance, so I went away for yoga teacher training. It was a month-long immersive training, very rigorous. And so when I came back, I felt like I hit the ground running, ready to take on my Ph.D. comprehensive exams. And so every day I'd wake up at 5 a.m., practice until, you know, 7 a.m., and then get ready for the day, start my day at 8, and then work all day until 8 or 9 o'clock, and then you know, go to bed by 9.30, rinse and repeat. And I did this for months. And then one day (laughs) I woke up just as I normally do every, every day. And I started, I attempted to start my yoga practice and (laughs) my body was like, no, (laughs) we are not practicing that rigorous yoga anymore, or at least not for today. And, but that, that, scared me. I was like, wait, what's happening? But it, it was my, what I would call that, that inner wisdom, that inner guidance of knowing what I need or what is best for me. Yeah. 
I, I, I love that because uh, that may not have been evident to you at the time that it was a wise inner voice. It yeah. may have even felt like, what the heck is wrong with me here that I'm not able to do this? And maybe that feels like a failure and it gave itself a kind of spiral of self-doubt or... I think we can get into some uh, vicious circles of that kind when we are not in a place of self-awareness. And self-awareness almost always, I think, entails self-compassion. Yes. Because if the awareness is, uh, is critical and harsh, then it's hard for us to take it in and integrate it. Harshness often comes, you know, when someone feels like, she or he is not being listened to. And if a part of ourself is, you know, is critical, then I will often encourage people to have a dialogue with that part. And rather than trying to override it or have it override us, I try to foster a dialogue with it, just like you would in a, you know, in a good couples relationship therapy. Right? You don't just try to have one person win and the other lose, but you try to foster a deep dialogue. So I might invite you to place that inner wisdom, as you called it, in a chair, literally in a chair across from you. And, and then to go into your, your deepest heart of where you are and say, what questions would I have to this voice that is saying, no, page? No more of that. Mm -hmm. This is enough. What question do you have for that voice? Maybe it's something as simple as, what? in that place you were then, what question would you have had for that, that voice? Mm. Why? Why are you stopping me? I'd probably start to berate myself. I have to. I have to keep pushing. I have to. Go, go, go. I want to perform, succeed, <laughs> you know. Gotcha. Gotcha, right? And I would probably say, tell her more about that. Tell her more about why you want to succeed or need to succeed. And we deepen into that view. You might even find that emotion started to come with that as you spoke to it. And uh, there might be some sources of that urge to succeed that uh, had a painful quality to them or a demanding quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just try to get that fully developed. And then I'd, I'd probably say, Paige, I wonder now, and this kind of pause point, if you could just kind of come over here and take the other chair. Just take a deep breath, kind of release it and become the voice of inner wisdom. What does this wise and strong part of you that says no? Stop, Paige. What more would she want to tell the page that is saying, I've got to do this. It's, I've got to, got to succeed. I've got to do more and more. What, what would this maybe older and wiser part say to that page? It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And you have to have sustainable methods, sustainable strategies to most gracefully, effectively, easily facilitate and transition and support you from point A to point B, if point B is your your goal. And performing a, 
incredibly rigorous yoga practice every day may not be sustainable in meeting those needs. Yeah. Just try saying this, kind of close your eyes and look at that image of page, pushing, 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 every day jammed, so rigorous. And just try, you know, give me a little nod when you see her, her face there, just emphasizing the need to do more and more. And just try saying to her, Paige, live in grace. Paige, live in grace. Live in sustainability. Live in sustainability. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. What more would you want to tell her about this journey that she's in for the long haul? What does she need to understand about this? You need to take care of yourself first and foremost to live your most authentic life. And remember no one else's opinion of you or validation of you is what really is important. What matters is what and how I feel about myself and taking care of myself is important for me to feel good about myself, which will support me in my relationship with myself and with others. Uh, yeah. Just, from that wise part, just say, I want to take care of you, Paige. I want to take care of you, Paige. Hmm. What's the little hmm? I feel like I needed to hear that. Because I, the part of you, yeah. that goes back to, I feel like sometimes I engage in strategies like procrastination because sometimes I'm fearful of taking care of myself because of the fear of maybe mm -hmm. not meeting others' expectations of how I should be or function mm -hmm. in my experience, in my reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 What I'm hearing there that I think is, is valuable, maybe even for the listeners to hear, is okay. that um, what we're doing here is really just trying to slow down into an authentic dialogue with self. Mm -hmm. We're asking these questions in a deeper personal form that we raised earlier. What has meaning for me now? What matters for me truly? Is it the opinion of others? Is it the efficient schedule? Um, or is it self-care and self-compassion and you know, a willingness to be with imperfection sometimes? And so, I mean, it's how, what a nice dialogue that was. I felt a bit inspired by it, this kind of self-caring that a part of you wanted to offer to another part that, that seemed to really need that. Mm -hmm. Definitely, I... And sure. I end up hurting myself by disengaging even more, you know, um, because then I don't, because there are things I really do enjoy. Like I love doing this podcast mm -hmm. and then out of a fear or not feeling that I'm going to perform to the level, maybe I'm not feeling whole, feeling fragmented and mm -hmm. I allow myself to be deterred from engaging in the podcast or whatever it is in life. And then I end up 
hurting myself even more. So it's, you know. And it is a hard thing. You you had said something I thought was also wise. There's a lot of wisdom in you. And, uh, you know, one thing is recognizing that this business of becoming who we are is a lifelong affair. And I've been at it about twice as long as you, and I'm still, I got a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it may take more than one life. I don't know if we have more than one life, but mm-hmm. if we do, I'm sure we can use them all. Um, <laughs> because it's it's always an incomplete process. And I think if we, if we anchor ourselves in that humility and approach life saying, you know, what can I learn from this? And then that's not inherently a self-critical position. It's a, a self-nurturing one. Mm-hmm. How can I implement what I'm learning and knowing now mm-hmm. from this place of greater awareness? What's my next step in becoming authentically who I am and who I can be? I think it, it helps build a life of meaning, and sometimes that life can be informed even by loss. Mm-hmm. That was so. I wonderful. really appreciate the yeah you know, the opportunity to talk with you here today. It's been a real pleasure for me, and yeah, I, I appreciate your bringing such authenticity to this podcast and to to the life and to the conversation with me. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to be on What's Next. I'm so glad that I got to see you again outside of the classroom and. And if you're ever interested, you are always welcome back on What's Next. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. (laughs) I appreciate it, Paige. And that concludes the episode with Dr. Robert Niemeyer on the meaning-making process in grieving. I hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Afterward, I must admit, I had a lot of epiphanies that helped me. I was journaling, just journaling away, (laughs) again, hoping for an enhanced self-understanding, self-awareness, right? The purpose of this podcast. And so for those of you who have been listening for a while, you know that I will share my reflections this Thursday. And for those of you who are just now tuning in and are unfamiliar with what I'm referring to, I'll explain. So what we're doing right now in series one is I am interviewing experts in the field regarding specific tools that will support us in developing this skill set as embodied self-regulation. Self-regulation is the self-mastery of your thoughts, feelings, emotions, behaviors, what have you. It's important to remember, though, that we cannot regulate what we are not aware of. And so for this reason, the the goal is to support the listeners, to support you in your own self-reflection and own self-awareness. I think that through communication, through sharing and exchanging ideas with one another, that we can grow and thus enhance our own individual self-awareness. Which explains why I choose to share my personal understandings with you. And I will share my reflections and learning lessons and tips and tricks as they come into my awareness, as they develop. And I will share them throughout the existence of this podcast. But this first series is incredibly important because it really provides the foundation. It sets us up for the overarching purpose of this podcast, which is, you know, through the use of these tools, we develop this skill set and self, this uh, state of awareness, this state of being 
called self-regulation or embodied self-regulation. And from that place, the, the literature supports that we are more effective in problem solving, in collaborating, coming together to better understand these, these issues, these dynamics, these polarities in our world, and how we can come together to problem solve these challenges for their betterment of all. And on that note, if anyone, if you are interested in becoming part of What's Next, in working together in some capacity, please feel free to email me at whatsnextofficial2020 at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash WN podcast. And last but not least, feel free to follow me on Instagram at the underscore P-H-D underscore Yogini, spelled Y-O-G-I-N-I. I hope to see you later this week as I, again, I share my personal reflections and learning lessons, and also next Tuesday as we dive into another tool. I hope you all have a great week. Thank you all so much for listening, and I would like to dedicate this episode to anyone who has experienced loss or, or death, loss of any kind, any grief, you know, I, I really do hope that this podcast, this episode supports you. We are here for you. I love y'all. Have a great one. Take care. Bye-bye.